We'll turn in your Bibles again to Habakkuk chapter 3, and this will be the last time that you turn to Habakkuk 3. We come to those last verses, namely verses 16 through 19, perhaps the most familiar verses of this entire book of Scripture, which is somewhat of an obscure prophetic book uh, that many people sort of forget about. It's referred to as a minor prophet, not because it's minor in its message or its theme, but because it is shorter than the other works of the prophets known as the major prophets. And so in the Old Testament, you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are longer, the minor prophets are shorter, but it's all the Word of God. It is all sharper than any two-edged sword. It is all inspired. It is all authoritative. And it is all practical for our hearts and our lives today. We've been working to understand in this book that Habakkuk the prophet is a man who is perplexed. In fact, he is a man full of questions. A man full of questions, and in this prophetic book that bears his name, he essentially asks three anguished questions. And these questions sort of burst forth from his lips. The first one is found in chapter 1. In verse 2, he says, O Lord, How long shall I cry for help? Chapter 1, therefore, signals that his first question is, How long, O Lord? But then as we move into chapter 2, he begins to ask not how, but he begins to ask why. And so the question moves from how long, O Lord, to why, O Lord. That's chapter 2. But as we've moved into chapter 3, the questions have moved from how and why to now where? And Habakkuk is seeking to answer the question, where now do I turn? Or you could say, to whom do I turn? Chapter 1 asked, how long, O Lord, how long will you allow the unrighteous to oppress the righteous? Chapter 2, why, O Lord, why send the Babylonians who are more wicked than the people of Judah to punish the unrighteous of Judah? In chapter 3, he's asking himself, where do I turn? Or more appropriately, to whom do I turn? And of course, you've seen that he turns to God. He composes a hymn written in honor of God to be sung in Israelite corporate worship. And in this hymn, he is reminding himself and all of the people of God of the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. All of us, like Habakkuk, will face those same three anguished questions at some point in our life. We will ask, Lord, how long will I suffer? Second, we'll ask, why do I have to suffer the way that I'm suffering? But out of both of those two questions comes an all-important third question, and that is, where will you turn in the midst of your suffering? You see, it's important to understand that the answers to the first two questions, how long, O Lord, and why, O Lord, the answers to those questions will change depending on different people and different circumstances. But the third answer to the third question, where do I turn and to whom do I turn, will always remain the same. You, have, you might have many questions this morning as we mentioned last week. But Jesus is the answer. Now what's the question? 
The gospel is the answer. So now what is the question? The father's goodness to his sons who are in union with his only begotten son is the answer. There's nothing beyond that. Now what's the question? And as you ask that question, where do I turn? The answer is implicit and ought to be obvious. There is only one place I can turn, and that is to the God of my salvation. And that's exactly where Habakkuk turns. Notice in chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, In the midst of all of his suffering, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, it doesn't matter so much where we begin as much as it matters where we end. Habakkuk began by questioning God. He began in chapter 1 by trying to inform God on what decisions to make and what he ought to do with the unrighteous in Judah. And then he began to question when God gave the answer of what he was going to do to take care of the unrighteous of Judah to send the wicked Babylonians. He began to question that. That's where he began, but he ends, and this is important to see, he ends by acknowledging his trust and his faith in a God who always knows what is best. A God who always acts within the strictures of his sovereignty and of his omnipotent and omniscient wisdom. Whereas he began by questioning God and His ways, he ends by finding comfort in this sovereign God of wisdom. And it reminds us of Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He ends his prophecy on a note of worship. He ends his prophecy composing this hymn for the people of God because they are going to be they're going to need to be reminded of the truth of God's glorious salvation in the midst of suffering. As they're carted off to Babylon as exiles in chains, there will be no temple to worship God in. But if they listen, they will remember this hymn that is implemented in Israelite corporate worship while the temple is still there. And as they are being carried off, they can sing this hymn of God's deliverance. And as we have gone through it, it is the theme that comes out over and over and over again of God as the divine warrior, the God who is the God of salvation for His people, the God who will cause His enemies to drown in water, the God who causes arrows to come forth from His mouth and to pierce His enemies, the God who tramples the sea with horses and surges the the mighty waters. This is the sovereign God who has come to the aid of His people. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated sin. He has defeated all sorrow. And as we already established the last two Lord's Days together, we know this is a hymn because of a couple of little signals. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he says it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. And that word prayer is a word that's used in the Psalms. And the Psalms were... Psalms or prayers set to music that were used in Israelite worship. The word for prayer there is the same word that the psalmist uses to describe hymns that he writes to God. And the word shiganoth is an untranslatable Hebrew term that is some sort of musical notation to to indicate the, the tone or to indicate the pitch of the song that is to be sung. Not only that, but we saw last week that 
He designates this word Selah throughout this hymn. One time in verse 3, once in verse 9, and another time in verse 13. Selah is another untranslatable Hebrew word, but essentially all commentators agree that it signals a pause for reflection and for meditation in the middle of a psalm or in the middle of a song. The other, only other time the word Selah is used in all of the Bible is found in the Psalms. Habakkuk is writing a psalm. He's writing a hymn. And then at the end of verse 19, the postscript to the choir master with stringed instruments. He dedicates this whole hymn to the choir master of the temple. So we've been talking about worship. We've been talking about the importance of worship. We saw in verses 1 and 2 what we called the pattern of worship. And we saw there that the pattern of worship includes the elements of adoration and petition. There is a certain way we approach God. There is a certain petition and cry from our hearts and reverential awe and adoration. That is the attitude, that is the pattern that should mark our worship. And then we saw last week in verses 3-15 through what we called the path of worship. And the path of worship is the content of our worship. What is the content of the words of most worship services today? Well, it ought to be Scripture. And it ought to be Scripture that's centered on God as a mighty deliverer. And that's what Habakkuk writes about in verses 3-15. through All the times that God, in His sovereignty, as a man of war, as a divine warrior, came to the aid of Israel. He delivered them from the Egyptians... And prophetically, this is looking forward to the day when He will also deliver them from the Babylonians and they will leave captivity and go back to Jerusalem where the temple will be rebuilt. This is a promise of God's salvation. This is the path of worship. The content of what should inform our worship, motivate our worship, mark our worship. So we move from the pattern of worship, verses 1 and 2, to the path of worship, verses 3 through 15. And now we come this morning to what I want to call the payoff of worship in verses 16 through 19. The payoff of worship. Verses 16 through 19 are a great affirmation of Habakkuk's faith. These verses, I think, are sort of Habakkuk's amen to God's sovereignty. It's as if Habakkuk is saying in these verses simply this, yes, I see God is sovereign. Yes, I do trust God. Yes, He will see me through. I affirm this. I affirm my faith in Him. Based upon what He has done for God's people in the past, I know that He's going to come through for us in the future. God has His reasons for His sovereignty. He is amening God's sovereignty. It reminds me of Job's affirmation of his faith or amen of his faith in Job 13.15 when Job said in the midst of his suffering, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. This is Habakkuk's version of Job's words. This is Habakkuk's amen to God's sovereignty and God's right to rule over His people and ultimately to deliver them according to His grace. So notice the amen with me, beginning in verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. 
My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places." To the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk writes this knowing that the key to having faith, the key to living with strong faith, is knowing the outcome of history. And he knows the outcome of history based upon what God has done in the past in God's deliverance. That even at the prospect of this world passing away, or at us passing away from this world, we know like Habakkuk that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this includes, and we might say especially includes, the promising word of God's saving gospel in Jesus Christ. And these words point forward to the salvation of in Christ. He speaks in verse 18 about the God of his salvation. He speaks in verse 19 about the Lord who is his strength. Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so while Habakkuk is thinking about the deliverance that will come by the hand of God from the Babylonians 70 years down the road, this is looking forward prophetically to the great deliverance that comes at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a reminder to us that no matter what tragedy or circumstance this life may bring, the God of our salvation is a faithful God. And when we come to the end of our ropes, just as Habakkuk and the people of God here have come to the end of their ropes, they rejoice in the God of their salvation because they understand that as bad as this life can get, eternity will be so rewarding as we are delivered by the God of our salvation. So Habakkuk concludes this hymn, and this entire prophecy by affirming his faith in God. And this affirmation of trust in God in verses 16 through 19 results in three experiences that he has as he marches forward in the difficult days ahead. He has nowhere to turn. He's already asked, Oh Lord, how long? He's then asked, why, O Lord? And now he's asking himself, where am I going to turn? And the only place he can turn to is God. And so he's affirming his trust in God. He's affirming his faith in God. And this sort of affirmation through song, through worship, results in three experiences that he has as he marches forward in the difficult days ahead. And understand, Habakkuk is not simply writing for himself. He is a prophet writing for the people of God who too will march with Him through these difficult days. And the Spirit of the living God that inspired the prophet 
Habakkuk, to write these words so long ago, knew that you would be sitting here this morning at Christ Reformed Community Church. And although you don't know what tomorrow might bring, God does. And although you are sitting there wondering how you are going to make your way through the maze of life that is fraught with all sorts of suffering and sorrow, what the Spirit of God wants you to understand this morning is that the only place you have to turn is to the God of your salvation. Jesus is the answer. Now what's the question? What's the worry? What's the concern? What's the problem? Jesus will always be the answer. Salvation will always be your surest hope to find joy and peace and strength in God. And so as we study these verses, you need to affirm your faith in God. You need to affirm your trust in God. Don't sit there doubting God. Don't sit there doubting what tomorrow might bring. Trust in the Word of God as the Spirit of God brings this to bear upon your soul and you affirm the God of your salvation. You will walk out of here experiencing the same three things that Habakkuk experienced in the midst of his calamity. What are these three things? The first one is peace in God. The second is joy in God. And the third is strength in God. You need to give a collective amen to the sovereign God of the universe and trust that when you affirm who He is, it will bring you the experience of these three blessed realities. Peace in God, joy in God, strength in God. So notice the first experience that results when we affirm our trust in God. This sort of faith results in number one, peace in God. Peace in God. Notice with me verse 16. Habakkuk writes, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My my legs tremble beneath me. Now watch this. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Notice those words, I hear. What did Habakkuk hear? Well, he had heard what God had revealed to him through a vision, which is the entire book thus far. He had heard the cry God did of Habakkuk. How long, O Lord? And he had heard the response of God that God would send the Babylonians to punish the wicked of Judah. He had also heard that after God used the Babylonians as an instrument of His judgment on Judah, that God was then going to judge the Babylonians and there was going to be a deliverance in the future for Judah. He heard this in chapter 1. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if I told you. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation. They march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They come for violence. And it goes on and on and on. Habakkuk had heard that, and that's why he's trembling. He's a human being. 
It's not that he doesn't believe God. It's that he believes exactly what God said. And he knows God is going to come through with his word. But he also heard chapter 2 and the five woe oracles against the Chaldeans that we read about in chapter 2, that God was going to come upon Babylon and He was going to punish the Chaldeans. He heard both. And he's trembling. He's trusting in God's Word. He knows that God's Word can be trusted. And so his body is trembling. Notice verse 16, his lips quiver. His body goes limp. Rottenness enters his bones and his legs tremble. That means his body just, he goes limp. He's actually physically affected by the spiritual realities that have been revealed to him. In fact, you can't see it in the Hebrew or in the Greek, in the uh, English. I'll get it right one of these days. This is English. In the English, but in the Hebrew, one commentator I read said that literally this verse speaks about Habakkuk's heart pounding. This was an anxiety attack that resulted from the truth of God's Word. He is physically affected so that his body is trembling and his heart is pounding and his lips are quivering. As a matter of fact, some people think that when he says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, that he is literally hearing the horses of the Chaldeans coming and approaching the city. And yet, notice what he says. At the end of verse 16, he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. See, Habakkuk is going to rest in the day of trouble because he knows that God will judge right. He waits quietly trusting in God instead of complaining to God. He's trusting in God's right to judge Judah, but he's also trusting in God's promise to judge Babylon, that payday would come someday for the Babylonians. And so in the meantime, Habakkuk would be patient. He would quietly and peacefully wait on the Lord. You know, it's been well said that he who waits on God loses no time. He who waits on God loses no time. Sometimes God calls us to wait. Sometimes God calls us to do nothing because it is a test of our patience and of our faith. But waiting on God quietly is critical for peace. We shouldn't be in a hurry to get ahead of God because we can't get ahead of God. And when we know that God is at work in our lives, especially when we know He has ordained a certain level of suffering for us, we should be willing to wait on what He is teaching us through that. And such waiting will produce a peace. As we submit to God's sovereignty, we yield ourselves to God's will. That's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. He's not going to fight with God any longer. God always wins the battle. God always gets the last word. And Habakkuk is just submitting to God. He's he's saying, I don't understand all of this. Uh, Yes, I am trembling. I'm scared to death. My, My lips are quivering. I trust in you. It's not that I don't trust in you. I'm just going to wait on you. His wisdom is sublime. His heart profoundly kind. God never is before His time and never is behind. Even when we don't understand what He is doing. I think I've shared the story with you before of President James Garfield. Before he became President of the United States, he was the principal of a certain college in Ohio. 
And the story goes of a father who came to uh, Principal Garfield and, and asked him if a particular course couldn't be simplified for the students so that his son, the son of this father, could go through the course and pass it easily. And James Garfield said, certainly. But that all depends on what you want your son to become. And then he said this, when God wants to make an oak tree, he takes 100 years. But when he wants to make a squash, he requires only two summers. Of course, the point of it was that all things take a process. Anything that is worth anything requires waiting. Do you remember the night before your wedding? It took forever. You remember the year before your wedding? It took forever. You ladies who have been pregnant, those nine months seem like nine years. Listen, God, our Heavenly Father, puts all of His sons through rigid tests. But when we patiently endure them, we become something and someone that brings Him greater glory. You could put it this way. Suffering is simply part of being enrolled in the school of Christ. So we think of James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what's the secret to peace? Well, in this context, it's coming to worship. Habakkuk has written a hymn of worship to be instituted in Israelite corporate worship, a hymn that reminds God's people of His glorious deliverance. This would be a hymn that would be sung in the temple with the people of God as they remind one another of God's salvation corporately and together their faith is affirmed. And what is the result of that? It's a peace. It's a peace that says, I will wait quietly on God in the day of trouble because I trust in Him. I was on the phone with a pastor this past week and he told me about a poll that was taken of Christians recently. And the question was asked in the poll, are you experiencing any sort of struggle or trial or sorrow? 90%, I think it was 90% said they were going through some difficulty, some immense trial in their life. But then the follow-up question was even more telling. The question, the follow-up question was, do you feel like worshiping God in the midst of that suffering? And it was like over 30% of Christians didn't want to worship when they were going through suffering. Listen, what Habakkuk is telling us through this hymn is that's exactly what we need to do when we're suffering. We need to worship with the people of God because our questions of how long, O Lord, will then turn into, God, I'll wait on whatever you want. There will be a peace that passes all understanding when God's people affirm together the God of their salvation. And Habakkuk knows that and that's his first experience. The first experience he has due to affirming his trust in God is the experience of peace in God. But there's a second experience that flows from his affirmation of trusting God. That's not only peace in God, verse 16, but secondly, joy in God. Joy in God in verses 17 and 18. Now, verse 17 might be the most familiar verse. Oftentimes people will quote this and they don't even know it comes from the Bible. 
sometimes Christians quote it, but they don't know where to find it in the Bible. Verse 17 is an amazing verse because in this verse there are six statements that come to us in ascending order of severity. In other words, Habakkuk is moving from bad circumstances to the worst of circumstances. And when he gets to the end of it, he says in verse 18, this is beautiful, yet in spite of all of this, in spite of the fact that things have gone from bad to worse, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I love these verses because I think that it corresponds well with the Christian's experience. Isn't it true that you find yourselves as you have open Bible and you're praying to the Lord, you're thinking to yourself because you can't concentrate on what you are reading, you're thinking to yourself, I just don't know if I can handle the next thing that will come. How in the world could things get worse? How in the world could things get worse than they already are given everything that I have gone through? Well, listen, Habakkuk felt that. He's there with you in your prayer closet. He's felt that. And so he lists these things going from bad to worse. Notice verse 17, the first statement of 6. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Uh, Figs were, were a delicacy in Israel. So their loss would have been disappointing, but it wouldn't have been fatal. It would have been more like an inconvenience. So he's starting off here with something that's bad, but this isn't the worst of things. But then notice what he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, statement number two, nor fruit be on the vines. You know, people didn't have anything to drink back then except for water when it was available and wine. Wine was essentially the only drink that would have had flavor in it. But again, this is more of an inconvenience. Sure, it's bad circumstances, but it's not the worst of circumstances. Wine was also used for medicine. And so this was not a good thing that that wine and and grapes were, were not plentiful. But notice he moves on to the third statement and he says, the produce of the olive fail. The olive produced a couple of things. It produced oil for lamps so that one could see in darkness, but it also was used for cooking. So now with this third statement, we're really getting into the, the worst of circumstances. We're moving from bad now into the worst of circumstances. And notice what he says, statement four, he says, and the fields yield no fruit. A failure for the fields to produce meant no barley, it meant no wheat, which would mean starvation for large quantities of the population since barley and wheat were both staples in the Israelite diet. So now we've moved from things that we like, like delicacies, like figs and wine. Now we have no oil to burn our lamps at night, which produces a certain fear. You don't know what's coming. Now we have no oil to cook. Now we have no barley. Now we have no wheat. Now notice statement number five. And then he goes on to say, the flock be cut off from the fold. This is talking about a flock of sheep or a flock of goats. And of course, sheep would have provided wool for warmth during the cold months. And occasionally people would eat sheep now they, their food supply is, is dwindling. There's no animals. This is moving from bad to worse. And notice statement 6. He says, And there be no herd in the stalls. And cows were 
usually not eaten, but they were used for work. They were placed in stalls as a special place of protection because those cows were what worked the ground. They tilled the ground. They tilled your garden so that you could plant crops. They threshed grain on the threshing floor so that you could eat. And the loss of maybe one or two of these things would have been bad, but to lose all of these things is devastating. This means disaster. This means starvation. This means ultimately death. And many people did die. It's hard to know for sure if these six things were actually occurring as he wrote them or if he's writing them as if they're going to happen sort of prophetically. I think they probably had already started to happen. And Habakkuk is thinking the same thing you often think. How in the world can I bear any more that God is going to put on me? But amazingly, notice his response. He says in verse 18, Yet in spite of all of this, though the fig tree won't blossom, fruit's not on the vines, no produce of the olive, the fields have no food, the flocks are cut off from the fold, no herd in the stalls. Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You know, people say that all the time. Well, I rejoice in the Lord. And sometimes you wonder if it's just emotionalism. Well, right here, folks, this isn't emotionalism. This can't be emotionalism. This isn't some superficial happiness based on outward prosperity. This is deep-seated joyfulness and inward peace. In spite of the outward circumstances that looked extremely bleak, Habakkuk has this sort of internal, independent joy that is separate from external factors. Everything around him just went from bad to worse. And yet he has joy in the Lord. How can this be? As much as I would like to stand here this morning and tell you that I could give to you three steps on how to have joy in the midst of suffering, I can't do that. I can't tell you that because guess what? Joy can't be manipulated. Joy is a gift from God. How, how, how does Habakkuk bear all of this with joy? Because God has given to him joy in his heart. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because I will take joy. Where? In the God of my salvation. See, that's where his joy was. It wasn't in circumstances. It wasn't in stuff. It was in a Savior. It wasn't in material prosperity. It was in spiritual peace. It wasn't in ambition and being successful. It was in being faithful to God. Faithfulness to His covenant God. Notice the language. He calls Him the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is sovereign. I'm going to submit to the Lord. I'm going to submit to the God of my salvation. My covenant God, His commitment to me has been staggering. His faithfulness to me has left me breathless. Therefore, though He slay me, yet I'll trust in Him. Yet I'll find joy. You see, it's, the problem isn't that Christians can't find joy, it's that they don't know where to look for it. Joy can't be manipulated. True happiness can't be something you conjure up and work up within your soul. It's something that God gives to us. And He gives it to us in His salvation. 
And that sort of perspective created this sort of joy within Habakkuk's heart. Now, the thing I love about Habakkuk is his honesty. Let's think about this for a moment. Back in verse 16, what does he say? He says, I hear, I hear the troops coming. I I hear the prophecy of God's word and my body trembles. My lips quiver. Rottenness enters me. I'm having an anxiety attack. I'm literally physically affected by these spiritual realities. He's honest about all of that. But it's not because he lacks faith. He's just weak in the flesh. And there's a difference between between being weak in the flesh and lacking faith. You study all of God's people throughout the Old Testament, they all had moments of weakness in the flesh. Abraham was weak in the flesh. David at times was weak in the flesh. Read the Psalms and and read the despair of his heart. Jeremiah was weak in the flesh. He was called the weeping prophet. Because as he pronounced doom and gloom upon the people of God, they hated him for it. John the Baptist, you remember, he languished in prison. He sent disciples to ask Jesus if he truly was the Christ. It wasn't because he lacked faith. It's because he was weak in the flesh, languishing in prison, languishing in depression. Paul told the Corinthians, there were trials and troubles on every side. There were fightings without. There were fears within. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 26 when He told the disciples to pray. He said, The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's all of us this morning. There's not a difference between any of us this morning. When you boil it down to its most common denominator, we're all the same. It's not that we don't have faith. It's that we're weak in our flesh. And that's when God gives to us the sort of sustaining joy and peace that we need. Ask me to explain it. I can't explain it any better than Habakkuk could explain it. Things went from bad to worse, and yet he still rejoiced in the Lord because his trust was in the God of his salvation. And you know, I think about the larger context of this, and I can't help but go to the New Testament. Habakkuk is writing this hymn for corporate worship And it's as if he's telling the people of God sort of in between the lines that corporate worship is so important. Singing about the God of our salvation is so critical. All meaning the God of our salvation is so important for the strengthening of our faith. So we read in Hebrews 10, verse 24, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Habakkuk understood that one of the best things we can do to affirm and strengthen our faith is to worship God corporately. Not to view it as a drag, but to sing to God, to amen Him for His sovereignty, to focus on the God of our salvation. Listen, friends, that's what produces joy. You want to know why there's not joy in your life? Your focus isn't on the God of your salvation. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with the trials. Focus on the God of your salvation. Habakkuk's affirmation of his faith in God in writing this hymn results in three experiences. The first one was peace in God, verse 16. The second was joy in God, verses 17 and 18. Now notice with me finally, verse 19, strength in God. Strength in God. Notice he says in verse 19, God... The Lord, oh, He's my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. 
God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. This is an affirmation of the stability and the strength that God gives to His people. The deer, the hind, was a female deer that was known for its ability to remain sure-footed on dangerous high mountain slopes. And what Habakkuk is saying for himself and for the people is that he has found a strength to walk on the high dangerous slopes without slipping. He's affirming his trust in God. He's affirming that it is God who will give him strength. This is total, complete trust in the faithful, covenantal God. He makes me tread on my high places. Now this is, by the way, a quotation from Psalm 18. If you turn back to Psalm 18, this is beautiful because Habakkuk understands that the Psalms are inspired Scripture. And so, he quotes here an experience from David, Psalm 18. And pick up with me in verse 31. David writes, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? Here it is, verse 33. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and He set me secure on the heights. Now this is language of David affirming the God of His salvation, giving to Him strength. What was the context of this? Well, we read about it in 2 Samuel 22. David writes Psalm 18 in the midst of being delivered from all of his enemies. David spent the majority of his life running from Saul, running from his enemies. And he comes to the end of all of this and he's delivered. And so he writes Psalm 18. The the beginning of it says, "...to the choir master, a psalm of David, a servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul." And David writes this hymn, "...Oh, I love You, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. The Lord gives me strength." To walk on high places. Well, you know what? I think Habakkuk understood exactly what David understood, and that was, that was the power of music. That was the power of music centered upon the God of salvation who gives to His people strength. Habakkuk is drawing on David's experience, and that gives us liberty to not only draw on David's experience, but also Habakkuk's experience. And what was this God of salvation? Well, notice Habakkuk 3, verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of arrows as they sped at the flashing of the glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. Habakkuk's talking to God. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And we saw last week that is a prophecy of the crushing of the head of the serpent. That this is ultimately looking forward to Christ, the great warrior, the great God of our salvation. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen folks, we are more than conquerors through this God of salvation. Faith in Him is the victory. 
And either we believe Jesus and his deliverance is enough, or we don't. Either we believe that he is sovereign over our circumstances, or we don't. The easiest verse in the Bible to understand is Habakkuk 2.4, when Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. There's nothing easier to understand in all of the Bible. Those who have been declared righteous in Christ are those who live by faith. Their peace, their joy, their strength is not tied to the things of this world. Ask me to explain it. I can't. But you can experience it as a child of God through faith in this marvelous God of our salvation. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you believe that this morning? Notice the end of Habakkuk's prophecy. The end of verse 19. He writes it to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the postscript. This is who he's dedicating it to. As I mentioned in the introduction, he's dedicating it to the choir master of the temple. He understands what David understood in Psalm 18 and all the other Psalms, and that is the power of worship. The power of hymns to affirm our faith, to strengthen our faith in God. What is the singing of hymns in worship but a collective all men, an affirmation of our faith in God? What kind of God? I'll tell you the kind of God. The God who gives you peace. The God who gives you strength. The God who gives you joy. And if you're trying to find any of those things outside of this God of salvation, you will never find it. The simple question this morning for believers is, do you believe this? Do you, will you, can you passionately affirm your faith in God regardless of what you're facing? Habakkuk's central message was a very simple truth. The righteous shall live by faith. How is your faith this morning? Do you need it affirmed? Then look to the God of your salvation and trust in Him. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we are grateful for these various truths that are meant to encourage our hearts. They're meant to strengthen us in our weariness. They're meant to fortify us in our agony and in our suffering and in our trials. And so, dear Father, we pray that you would etch these truths deep in our hearts. Father, make us understand them. Make us understand the power of them. And Lord, I pray for all present this morning. I have no doubt there are so many issues, so many concerns. And as things go from bad to worse, Lord, we pray that we would return to the only one we know to return to, and that is to You, the God of our salvation. That's what we want to do this morning, not only in the Word, but also in these emblems that are before us. So, Father, we ask Your blessing now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, Amen.